I think well, often why this moment really <laughs> attracts us is because it's a moment of escapism, a moment to step away from the reality of life, to kind of step out of the, the darkness around us, and to kind of huddle together and experience some warmth and some light. I think you only have to see our habit over Christmas for a box set. Think about the box sets that we might choose to watch. You might escape to a fantasy world, watch Lord of the Rings for a whole day. For some of you, that's your idea of fun. I can't quite get my head around it myself. For others of you, again, I'm going to say something that's going to be deeply controversial. Love, actually. (laughs) Some of you hate it. Some of you love it. But why is it so popular? Why 20 years or how many years after Hugh Grant danced his way into our screens? That's the last we're going to do, try and, kind of impression I'm going to try and give you. Um, why is it still so popular? Because in a, in a way, it kind of speaks to our longing for a hope, actually to be able to kind of step away from the challenges of life, the darkness, whether it's the kind of weather or actually just the, the everyday challenges of life and to kind of believe that, in the words of the film, love is all around us. Now, maybe you don't quite resonate with that, but there's something about wanting hope, wanting to escape from reality that appeals to us around Christmas time. Even, I would argue, the Christian Christmas story often gets engaged with as a moment of escape. It feels otherworldly. As you think about Mary and Joseph and donkeys and cattle lowing and a baby in a manger and wise men and shepherds and angels and and it reminds us of twee Christmas cards or nativity plays. It doesn't feel very real. The reason why we like thinking about it maybe just for a moment, maybe like a carol service like this one, is because it it reminds us of another world. It's kind of an opportunity to escape, or at least that's how you might think about it. The Christmas story is just another way to escape from the challenges of reality. And I want to suggest to you this evening that actually that's the completely wrong way to think about the Christmas story. The central idea at the heart of the Christian Christmas story is not that we must somehow find a way of escaping the darkness and moving away and escaping from reality, but rather that God would come in and step into our reality. This is what Christians call the incarnation. And you hear right in the middle of that word, carne, flesh. Some of you are going to be carnivores for the next couple of weeks and enjoy every kind of meat around the Christmas table. But it speaks of God taking on flesh. God, the Word, became flesh and dwelt amongst us. But as I say those words to you, they sound, they just roll off the tongue, and some of you are Christians, you've heard those words many, many times before. Or perhaps even if you're not a Christian, you may have heard them before. And they just kind of shrug our shoulders. Say, kind of a collective meh, so to speak. <laughs> we, in a sense that they, they don't really mean much to us. What I want to suggest to you is this idea of incarnation, that the invisible God would become visible, that God would enter into our world, is a deeply bewildering one. This is what um, the author Dorothy Sayers said. The incarnation is the most dramatic thing about Christianity, and indeed the most dramatic thing that has entered into the mind of men. But if you tell people, they stare at you in bewilderment. And do you know what? 
If that's how you feel when you hear this idea, I want to almost say you're onto something. If some of you are sitting here thinking, this idea that you really think that God would step into our world, that's ridiculous. I almost want to be like, if, you've, if that's your first reaction, you've understood something of the magnitude of what this is describing. I have some sympathy with that statement because it's, it's almost unthinkable. The invisible God would become visible. Remember, if we're thinking about who God is, from a, from a, think about what the Jews were expecting. Think about who they, how they think about God. Think about God as the creator of the universe, the one who is a source of all life. He would become like a baby. No wonder so many would look at this and say, this is almost unbelievable. I, I remember, I, I don't come from a Christian family. I'm from a Jewish atheist background. And I remember at university, uh, as I was grappling with the Christian faith, as I was grappling with the Christian faith, being struck and wrestling with this idea. I remember reading through the Gospels and, re- and, and really trying to get to the heart of whether Jesus really claim, made this claim, made the claim to forgive sins. I saw that he made the claim that he was going to come back and judge the world, that he took the same label to describe himself as the great I am. I became convinced that he really was claiming to be God. A little while later, as I grappled with this, and maybe this is for another story, but I became convinced that there were genuine reasons to agree, to be convinced that he was who he said he was and that he demanded my allegiance and my devotion. And actually, just as you hear this, you must, if you're coming from the outside, at least grapple with this question. Why does Jesus buck the trend of history? How is he able to make such incredible claims and to persuade so many? If you think about the, relig- the great religious teachers of history, you think about Buddha or Muhammad or Guru Nanak or any, any of the major figures of history who they, offer, they never make the claim to be God. They make the claim to point you towards God. They make the claim to teach you how to live the good life. But Jesus alone makes such a radical claim as to be God in the flesh and yet attracts such an incredible following. Even from a purely sociological or historical perspective, you may disagree with everything he has to say. You cannot deny that millions of people to this day follow him. Why is Jesus able to buck such a trend? Everybody else who claimed to be God would have been laughed out of the room at the time, or maybe they would have had a, a small following of people who followed them during their life, but once they died, they were forgotten. Why is Jesus able to make such a radical claim about himself and yet attract such a following? Everyone has to answer that question, just from a historical perspective. And actually, I'd go further and say, Given the claims that Jesus makes about himself, you cannot be indifferent to what he's saying. Or rather, you cannot simply say, oh, there goes a nice teacher with some good ideas. If he's making the claim to be God in the flesh, you can only have one of two options. Either he is a liar and a charlatan, a madman who should be laughed out of the room and given no credence, or he is who he claims to be, perfection incarnate. The idea that he's just a a good teacher with some good ideas is not an option for a man who made the outrageous claims 
to be God in the flesh. But I suspect still, as I speak about this idea, many of you will just kind of say, well, what what difference does it make? What difference would it make that God would enter our world? I want to show you that it would make every difference to your life today. Because it says God wants to be known. Actually, he understands your suffering and because he wants to embrace you. First of all, God wants to be known. God can be touched. The history of civilization is one of endless speculation as to the question of the divine. Philosophizing, spiritual experiences, always, and some of you right now would just say, I've given up ever knowing whether it's possible, ever really thinking about this question because it just feels impossible to answer. Actually, when Jesus steps into our world, he says, no, actually, God can be known. Actually, God wants to be known. You hear this in John's testimony. He speaks as one who is marveling, I think still, decades later, as to what he's experienced with Christ. He says, that which was from the beginning, saying, Jesus, who was from the beginning, who's always existed, which we have heard, which we, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands. He is saying, we have touched God. We've seen God with our own eyes. He speaks as one who, who carries a sense of marvel, like those astronauts who've, who've gone and visited the moon or have seen the, you know, kind of orbited the earth and have seen, seen the earth from, from space. Those moments of life-changing marvel. He speaks as one who is transformed by the experience. You say, why is it so transforming? What is it about it? That, well, you've just got to, when he says, when you hear him saying that, I've seen with my own eyes, I've touched, touched him with my hands, you've got to see that really what he's drawing on in that moment is three years of witnessing the person of Christ up close. You can see the accounts, uh, the eyewitness accounts in the Gospels or the, account, the Gospels based on eyewitness accounts. And you can Im- what I'm trying to say is that John and the other disciples, they didn't just kind of brush up against Christ. You know, you might say, I, t- I touched someone on the tube. I mean, in the tube, you, you can't avoid it. You touch about 10 different people every time you go on the tube. When, but he's saying he didn't just brush up against Christ. Actually, we had a life-changing encounter. And you can imagine when he says we saw him with our own eyes, the memories that are behind that statement. You think about how he can imagine, just go with me for a moment. He can imagine, he would be thinking back to the way they would have seen the love of Christ. He can think back to the moments when he would have seen Jesus crying over Jerusalem, longing for the people that he made, longing that they would return to the living God. Like a mother hen, I've longed to gather you to myself. He would have said as he's crying over his people, longing for them to come back to him. He would have seen Jesus' love. Or perhaps he would think back to the moments when he saw Jesus' profound courage. Think about the moment in the middle of John's gospel when he calms a crowd. There are a group about to stone a woman for adultery. And Jesus stands before them and simply says to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. John would have remembered the reaction of the crowd as they drop their stones. 
as they recognize perhaps the hypocrisy of their own actions and walk away. So he would have remembered his courage. Perhaps he would have remembered his gentleness. He would have remembered the way Jesus led a blind man out of his town to heal him miraculously away from the crowds. He would have remembered his authority as a teacher who was there when Jesus spoke in the synagogue in the town that he was from, his hometown. And Jesus spoke and the people were so struck by the authority that Jesus had as he taught them. They said, who is this man, effectively? Where did he get this wisdom from? Isn't this the carpenter's son? John would have been there as the crowds marveled at Christ's authority and wisdom. The disciples would have been there in Jesus' most intimate moments, sharing hundreds of meals together. Like the meal they shared the night before Christ was crucified, as they reclined together. Or in fact, later that night, as they watched Jesus in anguish, praying to his Father, asking that he would remove this cup, asking that he would not have to suffer this way, and then saying, your will be done. Going ahead with it, being willing to die on the cross. What I'm trying to tell you is that the disciples got up close and personal with the person of Christ. They saw a warts and all account. Think about this, when you've been on holiday with someone, and you've never been on holiday with them before, and after it, you kind of come back and think, yeah, I've learned a few things about that person. Or, or perhaps uh, you know, you're friends with someone, and then you live with them. And suddenly, when you live with them, you realize all sorts of things that, that weren't obvious before when they were kind of curating a, kind of a, vision, a, a profile of themselves before you. Suddenly, you see all their bad habits. Maybe I'm just speaking about all the people who've had to live with me. But my point is... <laughs> Think about the disciples. They've spent, they've spent three years with Jesus. They've seen the very worst moments, the hardest moments. They've seen him persevering against the odds. They've seen the sweat on his brow and the tears in his eyes. They've seen him ultimately go to the cross and give his life. And yet they are convinced that they have seen God in the flesh. You see, it's the multitude of moments that I described to you that mean the Gospels, they pulsate with the life of Christ. So that actually we too, as we read the accounts of Jesus' life, can almost say with the disciples, we have seen God. As we witness, as we see the account they give us, we can join with John and say we have seen him. Einstein, who was no Christian believer, was pushed by a journalist as to whether he believed in the historical figure of Christ. And he said, unquestionably, no one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. His personality pulsates in every word. And if this is true, think about what this means. How it speaks to that deep longing to know in humanity. How we've grasped around, trying to rationalize and deduce our way to God or try to find spiritual experiences that prove the existence of the divine. And this says, no, we don't need to do either of those things. That God has made, the invisible has become visible. The light has shone in the darkness. The word of God has put on flesh and he speaks our language. 
But it isn't just that we can see God. It's that we see the character of God. See, the central to this idea of incarnation is that God becomes vulnerable, that he suffers. And so he understands our suffering. You see this in the, in the baby, the idea, right at the beginning of the incarnation. Jesus, God in the flesh, becomes a baby. Is there nothing more vulnerable and weak and defenseless than a baby? Anyone who's had a baby knows that sometimes they need to be carried constantly. They can't even be put down. Some of you new parents know that all too well. Said so actually, the living God became a baby. He was willing to become vulnerable. And actually, it's more than that. To become human is to become vulnerable because we know that to be a human is to be vulnerable, to suffer. That is an inevitable part of the human experience. Shakespeare said, Every, each new morn, new widows howl, new orphans cry, sorrows strike heaven on the face. We know life is full of hardship and suffering. And what we want to do is withdraw from that. That's why we have this kind of escapist tendency at Christmas and, quite frankly, all the rest of the year when we try and detach ourselves from reality and just Netflix and chill and, deal, and just kind of try and avoid the pain of life. But this says God takes the very opposite approach, that Christ runs towards our suffering, that he actually as he becomes a human being, he moves into the darkness and he sucks it into himself. He experiences great suffering. That is the great narrative of the, of the story of the person of Christ. He experiences suffering unto death. As John would have reflected on the moments of Christ's life, he would have remembered that suffering. It would have loomed large in his mind as he remembered Christ being pulled before the sham court of religious leaders, being slandered and verbally attacked and lied about how he would have been watched him, Christ being humiliated and mocked and jeered by the crowd and hung, ultimately hung naked on a tree. He would have seen what I can only imagine would have been Christ's posture combining a sense of agony and compassion as Christ prays for his enemies, as he, as he prays for the crowd that are jeering, for him, jeering against him and says, effectively, God have mercy on them for they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Christ enters into our world and he enters into the very worst human experience. The crucifixion, his death, was an awful and inhumane punishment. Cicero, the Roman author, said it was the most miserable and most painful punishment appropriate to slaves only. Now you, of course, want to know why, and we'll come to that. But before, see, this means that Christians believe God understands their suffering. He understands the inevitable pain and grief of our lives. When you, some of you think about religious communities or religious churches like this one, you think it's kind of full of a sense of inauthenticity, a sense of people with kind of fake smiles and prayers that don't just hide the reality of the mess within. And this says it's the complete opposite. Actually, that Christians worship a God who knows what it's like to suffer, who knows our pain and our grief and the great hardships of life. It says as we pray, we pray to one who knows our pain. 
And actually, he loves us in the midst of our pain. It means we know that he is with us, that he's walked through the hardest experiences, worse than we would experience. And he's with us now by his spirit as we walk through the agony and the rubbish of life. It puts a very different perspective on what it means to walk with God. But let's then return finally then to that question, why? Why did Jesus suffer like that? Why did he come to earth? And what you've got to see is the whole point of Jesus' incarnation, the whole point even of his death, is to embrace us. The central reason, at the center of this whole story, is that God loves us and desires to be in relationship with us. And nothing about this makes sense unless you hear that it's not just that Christ wants to touch you, he wants to embrace you. He loves you and made you for a relationship with himself. The central Christian conviction is the reason you were made is to enjoy the God who made you, to enjoy his love, to be in relationship with him for eternity. And it says, but we know, and even the Christmas story is a kind of reminder that we do not respond well to that invitation. That the idea of Christ coming into our world is not just a kind of nice twee idea. For some of us, it's a threatening one. Because we don't want a Lord. We don't want a God. <laughs> We'd actually rather continue to be Lord of our lives. In fact, I think that's why some would believe in a kind of God as a force. You heard it. Many say, well, I can't believe in a personal God. I can believe there's a kind of force at the center of the universe. I think often we go there because actually a force doesn't make a demand on your life. Uh, you can believe that there's a force at the center of the universe because that force doesn't really have any, anything to say to you. The minute you believe in a personal God is the minute you have to confront what is that personal God saying to you. And so we actually would rather just kind of withdraw to a kind of, oh yeah, it's all just a load of rubbish. Because actually we'd rather than have to confront the reality that there is a God and he has something to say to us. But God, Christ anticipates that. He knows that we want to, with, sometimes want to withdraw, that resist his lordship. And you've got to see the whole incarnation as basically him coming, pursuing us out of love, saying, I made you for myself and I want you. See, at the center of this desire for relationship is the, the reality that God loves us. Now, you might say, that, that sounds just kind of vanilla. But what you've got to see is the love of God is so different to the love of the world. When we say we love someone, we mean, I enjoy you, you make me laugh, and I enjoy spending time with you. I love you. Christ's love is so different to that. It's a jealous love, a love that says, you are mine. You belong with me. I made you for myself. You will not be happy. You will not be satisfied until you give your, come to me and experience the love that you were made for. It's a love that pursues us, that doesn't give up, that continues to pursue you. Even now, if you're not a Christian, you must know that the living God is pursuing you and wants you and will not rest until he has you, so to speak. It's a sacrificial love. A love that Christ said, I'm willing to even give up my dignity, even my own life, to pay the cost on the cross so that you would be mine. It's this love at the center of the Christian story that speaks to our deepest longings. I believe, and I believe if you're not a Christian here, you would agree with me that we feel a deep longing for love. 
That is to be human. We long to be loved. The, the atheist professor uh, Alain de Botin says, every adult life is defined by two great love stories. The first is a quest for romantic fulfillment and relationships. The second, he says, is a, a, a desire for the love of the world. And what he means by that is a, we, we pursue all sorts of professional accomplishments as a way of trying to achieve, uh, secure the approval of our peers, what he describes as a love of the world. And the Christian says, neither of those loves is enough. That if you pursue this deep longing for love through romantic relationships or through seeking the approval of the world, none of that is enough. It will not satisfy you. Why? Because your romantic partner will fail to live up to the idealized vision of love. Because if you, sometimes if you attach your worth and purpose into the love of another person, they will end up controlling you. Their love will wax and wane, and so too it, with it, your, your happiness will ebb and flow. And the love of the world, the approval of your peers, well, anyone who's over the age of 12 probably knows that that kind of love is fickle. That the love of the world is fickle, that today they love you and tomorrow they'll hate you. And not just if you're a celebrity and you're a victim of the tabloid newspapers, but witness the England team when and if they come out, crash out of the World Cup. First they love you, then they hate you. The peers may remove their approval in a moment. What I'm saying is that we need a stronger love, a love that is unconditional, a love that loves us even in our worst moments, a love that loves us despite our flaws and our failings, a love that loves us even when we are unlovable. And that love is found in the person of Christ. And that love was demonstrated in his willingness to enter into our world and to go to the cross to die for us. And when you experience that love, it is transforming. I told you I wasn't a Christian. I came from a Jewish atheist background. And as I experienced this love, just in my room, praying, reading my Bible, I found a new freedom. A new freedom not to be controlled by the opinions of others. A new freedom not to... Um, to love people without wanting something in return. A peace and a joy that bubbles up because that love never ends. The love in Christ is something that continues and continues because it doesn't depend on you. And what I want to close with is the idea that Christ is the answer to our deepest longings. It's not just that I believe the Christian story because I'm convinced it's true and we'd have to go and do another whole talk on that. I'm convinced it also speaks to the reality of our experiences. That God who entered into our world is the answer to our deepest longings. We long for love. We find that love in the one who laid down his life for us. We long to be understood. We meet the one who entered into our suffering and knows the vulnerability we feel, the pain we experience, and the one who knows us better than we know ourselves. We long for forgiveness. We know we're aware of our imperfections. We meet the one who gave his life for us on the cross to bring about a forgiveness that lasts. We long for hope. We want to know that everything will be okay. We've wanted that since we were a little child. Christ speaks peace to our deepest fears when he promises to come back and put everything right one day to bring his kingdom completely on this earth. When we consider the pain and suffering of this life, 
We need simply not to escape and try and detach ourselves from the reality of life. Instead, we need to encounter the one who enters into the darkness, who entered in on a mission of love, of reconciliation, of a desire to be united with us, and who promises to to feed us with his presence and bring us peace and hope and forgiveness. If you're a Christian here, this season is a moment to reflect on this incredible miracle that God became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And that is the source of our hope. If you're not a Christian, I'm not expecting you to be persuaded by what I've had to say tonight. But I want to ask you, what if it's true? What if it's true that if at the center of the universe there is a God who loves you, who desires you, who desires a relationship with you, and whose love is better than life? And with an invitation into relationship, provides lasting peace, lasting hope, the promise of his presence, and incredible forgiveness. What if that's true? It would be life-changing, and I would love, love to invite you to find out more, to come and journey with us, to explore that reality.